Today's reading comes from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 21 to 38. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His, his disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will, sorry, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter, said to, oh, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Beautiful. Thanks, Mel. Sorry, the reading in there includes um, John 15, and we're not actually um, going through that as well, but um, we're just focusing on John 13 today. Um, we're here, and we've just started our series again, Better Together. It's our second month of looking through this theme for the year, and uh, Larry's decided that we're going to start off by looking at this idea of love, the foundational idea that actually defines who we are as Christians, who we are as we are better together. And this passage actually asks a really challenging question. And that challenging question is, if others look at your life, would they say that you are a disciple of Christ's? Is the way that you live your life and show others what you do with your life, would they look at you and say, there's something different about that person? They must be a disciple of Jesus's. Maybe someone would call you patient or kind, but is there something fundamentally different? And today we're looking particularly at verses 34 and 35. Let me read them out again to you. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So there's that question again. Do people look at you and say, you must be a disciple of Jesus because of how you love your fellow Christian, because of how you love one another? 
I think Christianity is really good at um, cluttering things, at making it confusing, of overcomplicating a simple message sometimes. I know certainly in my life, growing up in a church, growing up going to church every week, doing all the right things, I, I missed the point for a long time. For me, Christianity was about achievement, about doing performance, about doing all the right things. In 2010, when my, I know I've shared a little bit of my story before, but in 2010, when my pastor and missionary parents separated, it was a really challenging time for me. It kind of blew apart my worldview. My 18-year-old self couldn't actually understand what was going on. And it made me ask a whole bunch of new questions. Are Christians simply people who do Christian things? Or are they, how many right Christian things do they need to do in order to be a good Christian? What does it authentically mean to actually have faith? What does it look like to be born again? And I believe our passage today is saying that genuine, authentic faith looks like something. Genuine disciples are those who have experienced God's love for themselves and then outpour it into others. It first comes in and then it goes out like that beautiful sponge analogy that we just had earlier. Like branches of a like branches of a vine, branches of a vine. Like branches of a vine, we're connected to the source and we produce fruit for others to enjoy. So will you just join with me as we pray and then we'll get into our passage. Lord God, as we come before your word right now, may we hear you speaking directly to us, to our minds, to our hearts, and to our souls. I would ask that you would meet us exactly where we're at this morning. Help us to see you in this text, to see your radical love for us, and to know how to live that out wherever we find ourselves. I invite your transformational spirit to be at work in this place this morning. Amen. Beautiful. So we're going to look at three different things this morning, and we're going to look at context, the love of God, and how you can know for yourself. I just realized that I actually don't have a clicker. Uh, Wendy's on it. Thank you, Wendy. I appreciate it. Context, the love of God, and how you can know. So that's where we're going today in our passage, and uh, obviously we're going to start off with context, and I wanted to get a bit of a run-up to the verses 34 and 35 to understand what's actually going on here. What is, why does Jesus say this? What is he actually doing in this passage leading up to it? Because the verses before it actually kind of blew my mind a little bit. These verses that we're focusing on are really important, but the lead-up to it actually makes it so much more significant. So we're here at the Last Supper, and it's a topic and a passage that we've been looking at quite a bit over the last kind of few months this year. I think we've kind of been a bit familiar with it, but today I want us to focus particularly on the disciple John. He's the author of this passage, and he actually refers to himself kind of in a third person as the disciple who Jesus loved. And as we read through this, I want you to put yourself in his shoes. Imagine what he's feeling, imagine what he's going through, imagine what he's seeing here. Cool. So you've just been following Jesus around for three years, and we're here with the 12 of Jesus' disciples, maybe your 12 best friends, and it's the night before the crucifixion, the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed your feet in this amazing act of servanthood, and you're enjoying now dinner here with your best friends and the most incredible person you have ever met, Jesus, the servant king, the Messiah. Then all of a sudden it says, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. How would you feel if you're sitting there with Jesus and he says that? 
It says that they looked around and wondered who this was. I wonder what you would feel in this moment. Would you feel shock? Would you feel anger? Who, who is it that's going to betray Jesus, the one that I love? Would you feel a little bit of guilt? Is, is it me? There's 12 people here. Am I going to do something that betrays Jesus somehow? And in this case, you're, you're John, so you're sitting right next to Jesus, as the passage says, and you have this opportunity to lean across to Jesus and say, Lord, who is it? And in Jesus' own way, without drawing too much attention to himself, he dips the bread, hands it to Judas, and tells you, of all the people in this room, just you, who it is that's going to betray him. Can you imagine what is going on in John's mind in this one moment? One of your 12 best friends is just being revealed to you as the traitor, the one who will betray Jesus. It's, it's shocking. And suddenly, in a flash, you see Judas for who he really is. You've just spent three years with him, but you see him in this new light. Maybe you start realizing a few things, like in just the chapter earlier in John 12, how Judas makes this big fuss and anger about how Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume. If you suddenly realize that Judas wasn't upset because of what was actually happening. He wanted the money for himself. Maybe you wonder what else Judas wasted our money on. How else has he been betraying the group along the way? What are the emotions that are rising up in you in this moment? But now you're also wondering, how is Judas going to betray Jesus? What is actually happening here? And while all these realizations are going on, Jesus says something outstanding. It says, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. It seems like out of nowhere. It seems so strange that Jesus would say those words now. Judas is betraying Jesus and now the son will be glorified. Glory, now, Judas is the betrayer. What are all the emotions going on in your mind? This commentary I read on this passage said that this is probably the most emotionally charged moment of the apostle, of this writer of the gospel, John's entire life. The most emotionally charged moment of his life and Jesus continues. Jesus says, my children, I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. And he gives them a new command, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It almost doesn't all make sense together, but if we think about it, it's just compounding and compounding and compounding on how emotionally intense this moment was for John. All of a sudden, Jesus is also leaving. We can't go with him. We've been his disciples for three years, and are we no longer his disciples anymore? But then Jesus says, you won't be marked by your discipleship of physically following me anymore. Your new mark of discipleship will be how you love each other. This statement is simple, yet it is so profound. You no longer follow Jesus physically, you follow his example. His example of love specifically. 
And I want to transition because I think there's a thousand things we could say about this, but um, as I was kind of researching and trying to understand what's actually going on in this passage, and um, this little thing stood out to me, and it took me on a kind of a journey, and I want to take you on that journey as well this morning. I want to focus on this little bit at the beginning of verse 33. It's translated here as my children, but the word is actually technia. I don't normally spend much time in the original Greek languages, but this word is really significant because it is literally nowhere else in the entire Bible except in 1 John seven times. It's literally only in John 13, 33, and then in 1 John seven times. This moment was so significant for John that it left an imprint on him. And this little word that Jesus used that's translated most commonly as my little children left an imprint on John. And this really got my attention because why is this moment something that transforms John's life? What's actually going on here? Why is it so significant? But it also got my attention that Jesus' words, my, uh, sorry, Jesus' words, a new command I give you, John is also the only one to pick up on that and use it again in his, gospel, in his letters later on. I could go on and on and on about this, but as we look at 1 John, it's clear that that book is literally written as a kind of exposition about this phrase here. There's some verses here to kind of show how much this passage actually influenced what John wrote about. Again and again and again, John talks about this theme. Seeing Judas as the betrayer, hearing Jesus declare that the glory has come, finding out that he can no longer follow, and then finally that discipleship is now marked by love rather than physical following, left an imprint on John. So what I want to do now is actually use 1 John as a kind of exposition, as a, as a commentary in itself, as kind of the first authoritative, most reliable source of an explanation of what, what Jesus was saying, where he was going. So I'm just going to read these verses to us quickly. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. It's challenging, right? And it goes back to that first question. Do you know that you're a disciple? Does people know that you're a disciple of Jesus by the way that you love one another? We're going to explore these verses again in a minute, but I want to focus on two striking ways that, the, that 1 John actually deals with this new commandment of Jesus's. I want to focus on two striking things, and the first one is the love of God. It's interesting that in 1 John, John never at any point refers to the love of Jesus. At no point does he specifically say, love like Jesus loved. Again and again and again and again, he talks about the love of the Father. Here it is in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the 
for, no, I can't even say this word right now, uh, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I practice that word again and again, but I'm not even going to try to say it. But when we look at John's gospel, this isn't really all that surprising for John. John's gospel is the weird one where he constantly again and again and again talks about Jesus' divinity. Something struck John in that moment sitting there at the Last Supper. And I, there's this beautiful quote here. I'll just read it out to you. With betrayal in motion, the glory of God about to shine, Jesus leaving and love binding, what overcomes John is the thought, I was leaning on the shoulder of God. The imagery here blows me away. I think that is such a beautiful picture. How loving is our God that comes, becomes incarnate, dwells among us, eats with mere men, and then dies for them on a cross. John wants us to know the love of God and know it deeply, know it profoundly, because it's this love that transforms our inner world. Knowing the love of God transforms our inner world and enables us, empowers us. That's what causes us to love other people. Just like that sponge analogy earlier, again and again, it's only when we soak up the love of God that we can give it out to other people. I love this picture, leaning on the shoulder of God, but I also want us to stop and think about the way that Jesus loved Judas. I imagine sitting in John's shoes and how much that when Jesus reveals that, that Judas was the betrayer, that I would want to get up, run outside and tackle Judas to stop him, wrestle with him, do whatever I can to stop Judas from betraying Jesus. But that's not how we see Jesus treat Judas. Jesus knows all that he knows and still loves Judas passionately. And this has really struck me this week as I've thought about this passage, as I've sat in it and imagined myself there. And I want to ask, if you're feeling anything like Judas today, if you're feeling guilt, if you're feeling like you've let Jesus down in any way, I really want to encourage you to think about how Jesus treated Judas with profound love. I hope these pictures are encouraging to you too, but I want to touch on one thing, one more thing before we kind of keep going. We only have a small amount of time. And the last one, the last striking thing about John's letters is this idea of how you can know. As I look back at my 18-year-old self, Christianity, again, was about what I can do, how I can impress God, how I can do all the right things. It was a choice to live a certain lifestyle, to adopt an outward appearance. And I hope we've all heard plainly again and again and again that this simply isn't what the Bible teaches. Because John tells us that being a disciple, being a true follower of Christ, is an inward transformation. It means being born again supernaturally. It's been given a new heart of love for God and love for his people. We know that outward change is simply evidence of inward transformation. And I actually do want to go to John 15 quickly here. So um, uh, we're just going to look at verses 8 and 12 to 13. I think I can't get over this picture of the vine and the branches. I just love it so much, but... Here it is again. Here's verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you will bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I love that word, prove there. 
It's not that we bear much fruit and become disciples. Bearing fruit is proof that we are already disciples. Fruit is evidence that there's already inward transformation there. And I'll keep going, 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's almost like word for word, the exact same new commandment as Jesus gave just a couple of chapters earlier. But what it does do is it actually defines what love is. Uh, In our culture, love is confusing. So many different people will talk about infatuation or lust or just desire or an inward happy feeling. But simply here, Jesus calls love, he calls great love sacrifice. So here's another question for you, and I hope it's another challenging question. When was the last time that you showed truly sacrificial love? If I asked someone in your life, would they describe you as a sacrificially loving person? Maybe you want to go ask someone that. It's a a challenging question, right? And while it feels strange to say this, because this passage is clearly emphasizing love for your fellow Christians, for your brother, By this, everyone will know if you are my disciples, if you love one another. Part of me wants to shy away from this because the church is a missional people. It's people seeking to spread the kingdom of God to the world that we live in. But Jesus specifically says that it's for your fellow community, for fellow Christians. So I want to ask, how are you specifically loving your church family? Are you giving up your preferences to meet the needs of those around you? Are you seeking to care for the oldest, for the youngest, for the poorest, for those who are the greediest? Whatever it is. Do you have eyes open for those that don't fit in well in this community? Are you looking for people who are desperate for friendship? Are you loving like Jesus showed us how to love? And there's a hundred other things I would want to say here, but let me just conclude with three last things. As we start this uh, Better Together series, I, I want to give you three practical ways that we can respond to this, this idea. And the first one's already up there. Do you have authentic faith? Maybe you're sitting here and feeling a little bit uncertain. Maybe that question at the top is hard to answer. Do you have authentic faith? Do you know for sure that you are a genuine disciple of Jesus's? What we've talked about is definitely a big part of an answer, but there is a lot more to talk about. You don't need to feel uncertain. First, I would really encourage you to go home and read 1 John for yourself. It's five short, really quick, punchy chapters that are just full of John wrestling with this idea. But I would also really encourage you to talk to someone. This room is full of mature Christians who have been journeying in this, this, this area for a long time. I think we all wrestle with doubts sometimes. We all wrestle with how much external fruit do I need to show to really have inward transformation? It's a hard question. And I think it needs to be done in community. So if you're feeling uncertain today, talk to someone. Number two, if you're struggling to know what the love of God really is like, do you personally know the love of God for yourself? Maybe you never have really felt like you've experienced this, or maybe it's been a long time since you experienced that first love. I really hope and pray that something in that picture of John leaning on the shoulder of God speaks to you like it spoke to me. 
but I also want to encourage you to do something really practical after this service today. I really want to encourage you to find one person, a friend, whatever it is, and ask them the simple question, how do you know that God loves you? Maybe it's a scary question to ask that. Maybe it's hard to articulate that sometimes, but it's a really important question. How do you know personally in your own life that God loves you? Ask someone that. Number three. Maybe you're having a really difficult time loving other people lately. I totally understand where you're coming from. People are hard to love. I know that I can be hard to love sometimes. We're all learning here together. And we all want to do, we all want to love each other well together. And part of that is admitting to each other that sometimes it's hard. I really want to encourage you to pray with someone about this. Have a conversation after the service. Just say, hey, I've been finding it hard to love my coworker, my wife, my dog. I don't know whatever it is. There's so many people in this world that are challenging to love, but we're called to love. So don't just get by. Actually do something about it. So let me just... comes up. Lord God, I want to I pray first for those struggling to know if we have authentic faith. I want to ask that you would bring clarity. Help us to see clearly what you are supernaturally doing inside us. I want to ask that your children would feel peace. I want to ask that we would be able to remember this picture of John resting on your shoulder that we have this same invitation to enjoy this kind of relationship with you. That when, when we, that when we find rest in you, when we put our trust in you, something changes inside us. We're transformed and able to love others in the same radical way that you loved us. Thank you for your love. Amen.